Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Religious literacy has become a popular concept for navigating religious diversity in public life. In The Politics of Religious Literacy, Education and Emotion in a Secular Age, published by Brill Academic Publishers in 2022, Justine Ellis challenges commonly held understandings of religious literacy as an inclusive framework for engaging with religion in modern multi-faith democracies. Justine Ellis earned a PhD in theology in 2020 from Oxford University Press and is a scholar working on the intersection of religion, secularism, and public policy. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome. Hi, Salman. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you to you and to the New Books Network for hosting me today. Uh, our pleasure. To, so to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Certainly. So by way of background on what motivated this project, I would say that for the past decade or more, I've intentionally set out to inhabit essentially the borderlands between the academy and policy spaces, moving back and forth between these really two areas with the intention of trying to bridge these sites of knowledge production and also of action. So I studied religion while I was an undergrad here in New York City at Barnard College at Columbia University. And over the ensuing years, I worked in a variety of nonprofit and policy spaces. And during that time, my specific interest in religious literacy, which within the context of secularity, really came into sharper focus while I was working specifically in intergroup and interfaith policy contexts. So part of this, and this came into, again, sharper focus for me, was that scholarship to me has always had public stakes. But of course, what does that actually entail? So when I decided to go off and, as you mentioned, do my PhD, I wanted to make sure that my specialist training helped rather than hindered my ability to address some of these issues of wider concern. So as I mentioned, before the PhD, while I was working in these policy spaces, part of my work and portfolio focused on interreligious and intergroup outreach among young professionals. And I remember taking on the task of writing up a religious literacy guidebook for enhancing interreligious coalition building. And part of that work stream during that time was bringing together Muslim and Jewish young professionals to advance particular advocacy agendas in these interfaith intergroup coalition settings. But what I found was that some of this work was encountering 
unforeseen obstacles because it was operating under a model of interfaith engagement that in some cases presupposed clear-cut self-identification. So in other words, the idea that young people were self-identifying in straightforward ways as, say, Muslim or Jewish. And although that was the case for many, what I discovered was that young people were simply not identifying uniformly in those ways. And that is something we are seeing increasingly. So that sent me down the theory rabbit hole. And I went off and had this wonderful once in a lifetime opportunity to go to the UK to Oxford to do my doctorate, as you mentioned, in the Faculty of Theology and Religion there. And I was able to pursue a project on religious literacy within the context of rising religiously unaffiliated populations. And I looked primarily at US and UK examples of this growing transnational conversation. So while I was there, I'll say a little bit more about this. I latched onto the idea of affect theory, and I'd be happy to say more about this approach later in our conversation. But overall, for the uninitiated, I would say, broadly speaking, that theories of affect really call us to consider the roles of bodies, feelings, emotions, and environments. Basically, those forces that go beyond cognition, language, alone. So my guiding question when I started approaching this project was, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about lived religion, but increasingly scholarship is thinking about what does lived, felt, and embodied secularism look like from practical perspective, and in my particular interest, within educational and policy spaces. So what kinds of understandings of religion and secular, you know, come into play in public policy production, And what I found increasingly was that this popular concept of religious literacy provided a very good illustrative case and I would say problem space for examining these questions surrounding the changing dynamics of religion and secularism in public life. And I will just say chronologically that, you know, I've had the privilege and excitement of kicking around these these ideas during my doctorate. And afterwards, as an American Council of Learned Societies, ACLS postdoctoral fellow, and most recently as an advisor at a government ethics nonprofit in a D.C.-based policy space. So I will, you know, enough about my personal, you know, motivations and training. I, I should probably, you know, as this conversation, we're going to say a little bit more about religious literacy to, to kick us off. Yes. Uh, well, thank you for that. Uh, that sort of introduction helps kind of situate you and and your your um, your experience and and uh, and interests. And yes, the 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 next que- or the first question I have is what is religious literacy? What exactly does that term uh, uh, refer to? And that, as you say, what is religious literacy? That is the question, and it's it's quite capacious. I will say that. I'll preface my comment by saying that as a concept, I think it's become so ubiquitous, so pervasive that I'm confident that, of course, that you've heard of it, that that anyone tuning in has probably come across this term. It's very likely. And if you want to become religiously literate, there's a wide array of options that have become available in recent years. There are books intended for popular readership, online courses and certifications for students and professionals. And these religious literacy sources are basically everywhere you turn. And often this conversation comes up when, you know, challenges of living together in pluralistic societies arise. 
policymakers and educators very often call for increased religious literacy in education, policy, journalism, workplace context, and foreign service, and many other places as well. And the way I like to characterize it is that, and this is something that various advocates for religious literacy acknowledge, that you know there hasn't been an agreed upon definition that has emerged over the years. But I think one thing is clear is that the concept has become what, what I will call a buzz term rather than a buzzword. It's a buzz term with lasting power. And it's been used in popular media. And there's even ample space dedicated to it in professional associations with a wide reach like AAR, the American Academy of Religion. So it's becoming part of this wider and increasingly prevalent conversation around public scholarship itself. So what I will so what I will say is that, you know, religious literacy has really surged as this tool, conceptual tool for organizing public understandings of religion. So what I wanted to look at was what this policy conversations assumes and what are some of the dynamics it configures and potentially who it excludes along the way. I'm happy to say say a bit more about what drew me in here. Sure. Well, I'm curious. When we're thinking, uh, talking about religious literacy, are we talking about providing certain content? Let's say in the educational context, you talk about uh, primary school, or, or uh, um, you know, are we talking about providing students with certain content about? religions, or are we talking about providing particular intellectual skills to them? That is such a crucial question. And in the book I put together and have been in conversation with other scholars around this particular typologies. So I would say that for the most part, the conversation assumes that in many cases, that religious literacy is is a public good, that it's needed for associational life and liberal democracies, and that we should work to kind of find the optimal combination of, and this goes to your question, of values, content knowledge, and skills that combine to make people religiously literate. And the conversation has been really very caught up with the necessity or legal viability of the project, but I think less involved in the implication or lived aspects so what I would say about it is that, you know, religious literacy has kind of served as this educational and civic endeavor. And it's often associated with, again, this combination of knowledge and needing to engage meaningfully with religion. And it's coming, you know, within this context of an apparent resurgence of religion. And it comes up very often you'll have conversations around religious literacy in which it's framed as helping people get religion or encounter religion on the ground. Those have become really common refrains. And what I noticed about this, and this is what another thing that, another element that drew me into this work and that I found so intriguing was that the conversation so often centers on how to increase levels of religious literacy. How do you promote it and how do you do it more effectively and how do you have more of it? And what I found was that, and I talk about this in the book, is that so often participants in this conversation really fall into two opposing camps, that you've got the proponents, you have the detractors. And I say this without painting everyone with too broad a brush, but many fall into the category of advocating for much more robust, readily available religious literacy. And then on the other end, on the other hand, you have a much smaller camp that finds the concept unworkable and undesirable because they see religious literacy as either bringing in 
kind of a hidden and unacceptable faith formation advocacy agenda or simply downplaying religion by teaching it in potentially dispassionate academic ways. And I found this tension really troubling, these two opposing camps. And it's partially why I set out to look at religious literacy policy proposals, educational curricula, and also workplace case studies. Because I came, I really, through the course of this research, I became convinced that there had to be not necessarily a, a middle ground, you know, something mediating between these two positions, but that we had to cover different ground. So the book is my attempt in this conversation to take, to zoom out, to take a step back, so to speak. And I think as the title implies, you know, the politics of religious literacy, education and emotion in a secular age, it makes that case that we need to think about what religious literacy advocacy itself promotes. And this was intended very much as a theory-based and practiced and a reparative project, thinking about what the conversation assumes about these constructed categories of religion and secular. And I use, and we can talk about this a bit, I use use the frameworks of critical secularism studies and affect theory to think about how religious literacy functions as state discourse, because it is so frequently advertised as a tool, as you mentioned, for navigating this religiously plural sphere in multi-faith democracies. All right. So speaking of affect theory, how could you tell us a little bit more about affect theory and how does it relate to the issue of, of uh, religious literacy? Certainly. And I think this was something, these were insights that I found really core to this work and the framing of this project. And I think the way into it for me was looking at it through secularism study. So thinking about the concept of the secular, I think provided some clues into some of the issues around inclusivity at the intersection of religion and public policy. And what there's this, what has happened in scholarship, this this project that has essentially been termed the affective turn within secularism studies. And I will, I'll back that up by explaining what I mean by what I mean by this. And, and again, for the, for the uninitiated here that, you know, I found that there's this narrative of decline that underpins a lot of religious literacy advocacy, as in thinking about the decline of religious affiliation, participation and understanding, and even basic familiarity. So the thinking tends to go something something along these lines that if religion and get into what what people mean by the concept of religion perhaps later and that could take up its own recording i'm sure but bracketing that off for a moment that if the idea of religion isn't central to everyday life then deciphering its meaning requires training and a common argument in favor of of increasing religious literacy kind of invokes this widespread lack of knowledge about religious tropes that result potentially from a lack of exposure to an understanding of identifiably religious people and identifiably religious population. So I think that the rise of religious literacy coincides with this in, with this increase in the number of people who identify as not having religion. And I'm convinced that that is not a coincidence. I would say that on the theory front, going back to 
the secularism side of things and making that connection, that bridge to affect is that, you know, religious studies as an academic discipline has so often in, in recent years, but has increasingly emphasized the role of lived religion thinking about what it means to embody religion, thinking outside of these text-based spaces. But increasingly, I think scholarship is just suggesting that we need to, we need to concentrate on lived secularism too. And thinking about what that actually means. So interventions folks like Monique Shear, Nadia Fidil, Brigitte Johansson, they've noted that critical secularism studies in the past has moved from the study of secularization as a political process to thinking about the role of politics and institutions to more of a study of the secular itself as a lived practice. And these kinds of works, and there are plenty of others in the space, but I named that particular work, that these, these works draw attention to kind of, to thinking about what are some of the norms, customs, habits that inform how we live today. And Affect theory, as I mentioned, and would be happy to say more, calls us to pay attention to these sorts of configurations that are beyond language and reason and text alone. And I will add here that, you know, one really crucial way into this debate is through a focus on the body. And so, for example, um, a theorist named Charles Hirschkind, he asks, this really compelling question, and I absolutely latched on to this, which is, is there a secular body? And for someone like him, you know, the secular isn't just a political doctrine. And instead, raising, you know, in theory, raising this question of whether it's possible to even know if someone is secular and whether there are, are there characteristically identifiable, identifiable ways of being secular in the world? So living in secular ways might be about beliefs, but it might also be about actions, habits, or even the way we inhabit our environments. So these kinds of questions are what prompted what has been called the embodiment turn or affective turn in critical secularism studies, which reorients these conversations towards lived and embodied experiences of the secular. And you know, these resources suggest that our decision-making results from dynamics outside of language and reason alone. And they point out the ways in which our actions, our attitudes, our attachments really take shape, you know, not only at this cognitive level, but also at a visceral level. So that's, you know, taken together, it raises the question of whether, you know, does it actually feel different to be secular from being religious? And is it even impossible at all to differentiate these these two states of being? So I think that that's something that really surged for me while doing this work around a project that is based on the the public study of religion. What does that mean? So those are some some places where I picked up on in this conversation. Right, right. And so just to to um, to to note, to emphasize for people who are not familiar with this, uh, you know, with this topic, as you were saying that um, often the way that some sort of prominent secular people or atheists, famous atheists in, uh, you know, recent years, the way that they describe themselves and present themselves and the way that many people in the public think about them is that the, the idea of secularism is based on certain uh, 
um, you know, theories, certain ideas, um, and that it's a sort of rejection of religious doctrine based on rationalism and so on. Uh, people like Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins and others are often associated with this kind of, uh, sometimes called the new atheists, and they're associated with this kind of 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 discourse that that the reason why they're atheists the reason why um, they're secular is because of these particular ra- quote unquote rationalist principles or you know a use of the scientific method and so on and essentially if I understand uh, you correctly uh, the um, the secular the um, people who are studying, you know, secularism, critical secularism studies are basically arguing that may be part of the secular experience, but there's also an embodied part. There's also an emotional part to the experience of secularism, that it's not purely a kind of logical, rational um, uh, um uh, experience, there's also other parts to this phenomenon, and they want to make sure that those parts are not ignored. Uh, absolutely. And I think that was a really helpful sort of capsule summary of where where this discipline stands. And, and the two, you know, reason and emotion are not necessarily intention, but so often it gets framed and figured that way in, in public conversation. So thinking about this affective turn in secularism studies, I think, is a helpful. And obviously, there's a lot of very, very good and emerging scholarship and much more work to be done on this front. But having that initial conversation around thinking about how many of our actions are, are shot through with both potentially reason and emotion, and what does that mean for those two things? And how do we go about conducting scholarship without uncritically reproducing these you know, mind-body dualisms or reason and emotion binaries. And you see them surging all the time. And I think one area where this comes into particular focus is, and I found this throughout, is in the area of pedagogy, of teaching. And this was something that I found so compelling in this book and in this project. And I think it came into sharper focus, especially in U.S. contexts. So I'll give you, I'll give you, I'm happy to give you an example here that I think a lot of times, especially in U.S. public school classrooms, thinking about constitutional constraints, a lot of times people are really concerned about running afoul of constitutional constraints in public school classroom settings. So educators, and potentially rightly so, have come to fear some of these emotive pulls associated with teaching about religion. And this anxiety surrounding emotion embodiment, you know, can come at a cost. So I'll give what, you know, one example that I draw on in the book and, you know, can mention here is that I think experiential learning within religious literacy is really an illustrative case. So back in 2013, I can't believe I can say this, but that was a decade ago. (laughs) That's already hard to imagine, but the stakes have not changed at all that, there was an incident that ended up getting called Burka Gate. And I kid you not, that is actually what it was called. And it caused these ripples across popular media in the US because photos surfaced of school children wearing full body coverings as part of a world religions class. And what ended up happening is that while when reflecting on and thinking about best practices or takeaways from this media fueled outrage that ensued, 
what happened was a and I, I pick up on this on, in the book a well-established journal education journalist what she does is she puts together a series of recommendations and she urges educators to steer clear of experiential exercises because in, in her understanding in her word the moment you know you put on religious garb so to speak you come close to simulating a religious act and again these are her words that you're close to simulating a religious act and for me this was so compelling and troubling because i think this particular note of caution says so much and the way this plays out is that it's saying that you know you're you're putting yourself in someone else's shoes and that is dangerous and why is that dangerous it's dangerous because in this logic, if you're operative with, if you're operating within this logic, that are that bodies and by extension, and it goes in that order, and by extension, our minds can so easily move into this territory of pros, of possible proselytization, of as I mentioned before, this constitutionally impermissible faith formation, and I say that with the caveat that I always mention in in all contexts, not just academic ones, that I am not a lawyer and not and not a legal scholar, but thinking about these broader these broader movements. And I think according to this logic, and this is something that I saw running through so much of religious literacy advocacy and policy proposals was that, you know, thinking and reading could maintain, help you maintain a critical academic distance. If you read about it in a book, that's all right because you're not participating in the same way. But the moment that emotions or bodily connections to our environments factor into this wider calculus, now all of a sudden and very suddenly we've strayed, we've, we've gone astray. We've run from this supposedly and purportedly safe and contained world of language and text into a much, much messier and uncontained area of human emotions and bodies. So I think this is the place where, and this is something that I tried to keep front of mind as I was working on this project, where theory meets practice in these very challenging and compelling ways. And I think that that's something that I picked up on and I'm hopeful that, and I know that others who are operating in this space have been paying attention, have been attending to these kind of ambivalent approaches to the body within Western intellectual history has led to this privileging and perhaps I'm condensing and, and oversimplifying here, but this privileging of cognition over embodiment and, you know, prioritizing thinking over feeling. And we can see this coming into play in religious literacy case studies. Right. I mean, it's interesting to me. Uh, I think, I, you know, I think this topic is so fascinating. And I think what you were just describing, um, you know, that there's a kind of invisible or, or, or not so invisible line in the sand where some, uh, um, you know, proponents of, or critics, I don't know, of religious literacy would argue that if you're on one side of that line, it's permissible. But if you cross that line, suddenly you've reached, you, you've, um, you've uh, ventured into unacceptable territory, and that the line in the sand is the line between cognition and uh, emotion, or 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 or. or um, um, 
you know, doing something, uh, you know, sort of physical with a body. So if you're reading a book about a religion, that's permissible. But if you're wearing uh, religious garb from a religion, and I was thinking about what if you're eating food, let's say, if you are, you know, uh, before Passover, if you'd have, you know, non-Jewish students eat matzah and say, hey, not that we're, you know, making a Seder, a, a Passover celebration, but just, you know, as a, a experiential thing, hey, this is something that, you know, um, uh, um, you know, religious Jews eat on Passover and Passover is coming up. Here, everyone in the in the in the class could take a piece of matzah. I don't know if anyone's ever done this. I'm just thinking um, out loud here. And you, you know, you could each uh, uh, take a little piece and just sort of experience on some level, you know, what it might feel like to be uh, a Jew who's celebrating Passover. And you're saying that some people feel that that is crossing uh, um, a line that's just unacceptable. And I'm reminded, uh, I grew up in a very ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn, and in in the community that I grew up in, the idea of learning about other religions, even that was considered completely unacceptable, because to have one's mind entertain ideas about a different religion, even if it's not in a context, a sort of devotional context where, you know, maybe you might actually embrace that other faith, but just as a kind of um, intellectual exercise would be considered completely unacceptable. And I'm also reminded that right now we're living through this uh, in the U.S., we're living through this major um crisis a moment where um, uh, politically and culturally conservative states are banning certain books or uh, banning or, or making it difficult for students to have access to public libraries and the books that they contain. Um, and so, again, that's that seems like a very clear um, expression of the idea that even to think about other um, um, you know, forbidden topics, whether they're other religions or sexuality or whatever it is, just to think about them intellectually is already uh, crossing a line and is unacceptable. I'm, I'm so glad you raised that. And thank you for sharing about, about your background as well, because I think that this puts some of these issues into sharper focus, because what you're, what you're describing and what you're citing is, it's not simply, you know, knowledge production, but knowledge accessibility and where i think i saw in from this you know within the context of religious literacy debates is that this is as i was saying this place where theory meets practice and i think a place where this really comes into sharper focus is thinking about a, a particular formulation that i found helpful when when doing this research which is which is Donovan Schaefer's phrasing, and he's written extensively about affect theory and its context within religious um, religious studies. And he talks about what he terms the linguistic fallacy. And again, the linguistic fallacy, which presupposes that decision-making results directly from language. So the idea that essentially buying into the linguistic fallacy entails what he what he terms as you know misunderstanding religion as merely a byproduct of language that when you're talking about it, so this privileging of language as you've seen can lead to textualism and it can lead to essentially an overemphasis on the role of spoken language and the written word and i think what's worse still is that it can cause us to overlook these additional factors that come into 
you know, decision-making, knowledge production and knowledge growth. And as you even cited something along the lines of even knowledge accessibility, what gets, what gets taught and where, and that's so often the conversations that animate public discussion, just who, what is acceptable? What is taboo? What are we, what are we allowed to, to, to teach and talk about? And I think within the book, and I do talk about this, is that the idea, I think a lot of a lot of the religious literacy initiatives propose particular strategies for teacher training. And I think that really helps crystallize some of these issues. So I can give another another quick example here that um, an early proponent of religious literacy. So this is there have been many different phases and and instances of it. And in the chapter, I do a little bit of scene setting. I talk about the rise of religious literacy. And in my understanding, from what I was able to reconstruct, uh, you know, how did this come into being as far as as far as I could tell? And in one of the earlier instantiations and earlier iterations, this proponent of religious literacy comments really frequently about the concepts of neutrality and fairness in teaching about religions within U.S. And again, it's important to note that this is within U.S. school contexts. I did look at this from um, a U.K. angle as well and looked at these um, transnational, supranational texts as well. But primarily, I kept the conversation Anglophone in large part because that is where a lot of this conversation is taking place. So I'll just add that as a note. But what happened was when this when this person, when this scholar was discussing teacher training, as you know, teacher training is an approach to the topic of religion, this person really contends that, you know, the neutrality that's morally required isn't one that that stops it, prevents a teacher or a text from taking sides. But instead, and he uses words that like, what really has to happen is that the, that you need to have something that respects them. And he uses the term, the moral integrity of the student by not requiring them to agree. So in this, in this logic and this understanding that the text can be as out there or as, you know, can be suggestive of particular positions, but we need to respect students' moral integrity to, you know, make their own decisions. And, you know, that, and I think what's really significant about the way this person understands it is that it's emphasizing that this concept of neutrality derives from students' ability to make up their own minds based on linguistic inputs and potentially dispassionate reasoned assessment. And I would not, and again, not to paint everything with a broad brush, but I think this particular statement and understanding highlights and calls attention to some of the potential cognitivist biases underlying religious literacy proposals. Because in this, in this framework, teachers' attitudes, whether you convey them non-verbally or you state something explicitly, in this view, play very much a limited role in conveying ideas that reason, autonomy, and individual discernment are the forces that act as buffers. And that's what protects students from possible emotive pulls. So I think, you know, revisiting what we were talking about earlier, that religion, that what ends up happening within religious literacy is that it highlights that there's this potentially misleading opposition between reason and emotion and mind-body that play out in real-world contexts. And you have all of these consequences that come along with it. So what ends up happening is that arguments in favor of religious inclusion use the grammar and sometimes some of the preconceptions that come along with secularism 
you know, secular liberalism that can elevate rationality, neutrality, and critical distance. And what we're seeing and why I found the religious literacy test case so exa- so illustrative is that we're seeing that it's not quite so unco- neat. It doesn't map on quite as neatly as potentially previously thought. Right. And it seems like what you're the way that you're sort of critiquing the the discourse on r- religious literacy, it seems to parallel um, the kind of general critique against quote unquote objectivity, uh, you know, in general. So if you think about um, the idea that uh, um, teachers in 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 primary school or, or university professors should be quote unquote objective or unbiased and that was certainly a a, a mantra and a, a a mindset for a long time and then scholars more recently um, started to challenge this idea and say, well, actually, is it even possible for people to be fully objective? They could try to be dispassionate uh, and they could try to be rigorous and they could try to, you know, marshal evidence and, and, and describe the, the evidence that they have for their particular position. But is it possible for a, a teacher or a professor to be fully um, uh, objective in their uh, analysis and description of a given topic. And it seems like there's a similar kind of dynamic going on when we think about religious literacy. It's interesting that you that you raise that, you know, thinking about objectivity and in, in so many different ways that, you know, neutrality or objectivity is are often the centerpieces of these conversations. And in so many ways, I've, I've become increasingly convinced that that might actually obscure some of what is going on. And I'll, I'll say a bit more. And I, I hope I've gotten this quote right, but a kind of a prominent affect theorist, uh, Greg Sigroth, he puts it this way. He says that pedagogy, and I mentioned this in the book, that pedagogy is affect's first lesson. So again, pedagogy is affect's first lesson. And my, my read on that or my interpretation of that is that affects, in other words, they teach us. They instruct, they inform and, you know, and engage our feeling senses and emotions. And so coming, and that goes back to these, you know, mind, body, dualism, that it's not so clear cut. So this goes back to your, you know, your question or comment around objectivity. That is something that is really coming to the fore increasingly nowadays, but it was something that is shot through all of like religious literacy discourse as well. So I think this is a place where affect theory, having those theoretical frameworks and seeing the places where the theory plays out in practice can complicate this picture and can show the ways that, you know, are we, the question is, are we, are we really, you know, to, to paraphrase others, are we really learn? are we always learning when we're being taught? You know, how do we, how do we know these places where we, where we learn particular things and, I do mention this in the book where it's like, are the, let's talk about sites where we learn to, are we, where are we learning to be, to be liberal subjects? Where are we learning these things? And sometimes it's part of a very explicit program of civics instruction or learning about democracy. And there's this distinction just drawn between learning about democracy and learning for democracy, learning, you know, to elevate those ends. And that's not, I, I bracket that off that, you know, there's a lot of work around whether or not that's the right thing to be doing. That's, that, that's outside of a lot of the scope of what, what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the ways in which this is happening and what are some of those things that often go unacknowledged? How can we, 
first of all, start acknowledging them and think about how that would configure our pedagogical, our teaching spaces. And if we if we, we do attune ourselves to this, what, what are those implications for teaching, for teaching or training, and more broadly for civics education in this moment of increasing attention to our shared civic life? Right. I think it's interesting to think about what is the relationship or the boundary between learning about a religion and learning, you know, to be part of a given religion, you know? So again, just thinking in a sort of concrete way, if you have a, a, um, a school teacher that's teaching her class about Christianity, what would it be like to teach uh, the students so that they understand something about the nature of Christianity versus teaching them in order to potentially sort of get them to embrace Christianity or a particular version of Christianity? Absolutely. And I think something that I learned or or I think a preconception that I had or one of my initial hypotheses going into this project when I was in the early stages was that going the comparative case study angle, looking at U.S. versus U.K., looking at their very, very different juridical frameworks, their church state formations, and educational spaces as well, where you have, you know, in the UK, you have faith schools and have faith confessional training as, as part of that. And whether or not people are assimilating this or paying attention or having that become part of their identity and faith formation is, a, is, an, is, a, is another story. But I, I came into this project with the, with the presupposition that religious literacy would look very different on either side of the pond. And I'm sure there are others who, who might challenge me on this, but what, what did surprise me was, was the extent to which the conversations were quite similar. And I think one, one potential factor around that is that the uh, that proponents of religious literacy are in conversation with one another. So it is increasingly an Anglophone conversation. So that may have been one of the reasons why I found it to be so similar, but I think the differentiation, the differentiating markers or the kind of typologies that came in here are, I think the biggest differentiators are things around, you know, values, skills, or content knowledge. And I think a lot of increasingly proponents and advocates of religious literacy are trying to bring all of those together in one. But historically, you can take a look back at it and see that certain proponents could be seen as falling into particular camps. So for me, that was the differentiator rather than the varying geographic context. So that was that was something that had surprised me when going into this project. Right. And speaking of uh, the geographical context, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the history of the role that religion played in American public schools before the the early 1960s? Oh, my goodness, that would I think that might be it's that might be its own its own segment. But I will say, you know, for for my purposes, what I ended up doing was doing a very very short, and I would urge for anyone who who takes the time and so kindly reads this book, I, I do dedicate a small amount of space to framing this. As I think I mentioned previously, what ends up happening is that, you know, I, I trace this rise of religious literacy that I think coincides with a wider recognition around the role of 
religiously unaffiliated population. So that's something that is in kind of the more that sets the stage for the more the much more recent history. But if you think about kind of religious literacy in context that you know that there's this long-standing classroom history around particular US considerations, you know there are these and on there's a lot of critical scholarship around this as well around you know Supreme Court rulings, cases like Abingdon School District versus Shemp, which is so this Abingdon case gets often cited as this watershed moment within religion and American education. So this is a 1963 United States Supreme Court decision that you're talking about? That's right. And and this so often gets held up as in a kind of an example of this, you know, watershed moment within religion and and people who who have much greater legal knowledge around who are, you know, scholars of religion and education or religion and law, you know, have a variety of opinions about, you know, the, the weight that should be placed on this particular marker. And there are plenty of other cases, but... Uh, could, could you just say briefly, what was the basic uh, um, um, ruling in that case for people that are not familiar with it? Sure. And I think what what was important here is that what in this case revolved around um, basically the role that the Bible would play in American public education. And this opinion that got sent down, that got set down in Shem said that, you know, devotional Bible readings, you know, often, you know, performed really perfunctorily as part of these mandatory morning assemblies were, were unconstitutional. So that, so as part of that, there's a legacy of this ruling that it put an end, at least ostensibly, to devotional use of Bible in nation's public education settings. But, and this is where a lot of people who are making the case for religious literacy trace this genealogy or trace this history is that, and there are obviously very divergent opinions on what this actually entailed, but that this ruling didn't necessarily seek to eliminate this kind of text, the Bible, and I say that not as a monolith, but, you know, in this interpretation, you know, from American classrooms, that even though the court did ban devotional readings as part of this program, it did leave room for religion's inclusion in public school curricula. So what ended up happening is that, and there are various narratives around this, and this isn't something that I get into too much in the book because it's it's seen, it's just scene setting, but and there are plenty of other scholars who have really delved into these questions around, again, whether or not this is the right origin story for religion in American education. But the conversation tended to surge around, you know, religion and public school cu- curricula and how do you do it in constitutionally permissible ways? And how do you do it as part of a quote unquote secular program of education? What would that look like? And of course, going back to our earlier question that, you know, those, there are very, very different considerations in contexts like the UK, where you have these faith schools and you have these councils, what they call standing advisory councils for RE, for religious education. And it's the, and they call them SACRES. So they come up with, you know, locally devised uh, syllabi based on local stakeholders. So you end up with like a locally agreed syllabus. For kind of, and sometimes the goal is faith formation. Although whether that happens in practice again is a is a different story. But so I, I came into this project thinking about some of these differences and thought about some of the kind of court Supreme Court cases as as simply scene setting for 
the later conversation that I was trying, that I was staging around rising in very recent years, rising recognition of rising religiously unaffiliated populations and what that would mean for programs of education and identity and something like religious literacy that although I do talk a fair amount about school and public schools and and by public school, I mean in the U.S. definition of you know state-sponsored schooling. And what does that look like? So it, this does take place in places like classrooms, but I think more broadly, and this is where religious literacy really becomes, so, to me, so interesting and, and tricky, is that so the focus of it so often is outside of those classroom settings. What does religious literacy look like in journalism, in public service, in higher education, in workplace contexts. And I spent a lot of time in the book thinking about what this would look like, you know, playing out in, in work, in increasing, like, I guess, against the reg, against the backdrop of this increasing recognition that workplaces are, are increasingly global. And what is that? And what does that look like in practice? So, taking the conversation away from schools with the recognition that that is a lot of its history and into various sites where religious literacy is operative. And again, you know, recognizing that religious literacy itself is fairly broad as a term. And this is something that proponents of it recognize self-consciously and do, and a lot of folks do offer different definitions, but recognize that there are various schools of thought within this conversation. Right, right. Um, let me ask you, shifting gears here a bit, uh, how does Charles Taylor's uh, formulation of secularity relate to the issue of religious literacy? I'm so I'm glad you asked that because that is the question that that I had while while building kind of the theoretical scaffolding of this book, and the way I I saw this playing out and. Partially because I think that a lot of early proponents of religious literacy draw on similar arguments. Charles Taylor, big, massive figure in kind of secularism studies and critical secularism studies. And there's even, an ex- you know, talking about the extent to which these kinds of works are becoming almost canonical in what was once a new study. So I think what I saw, and I'll, I'll, I'll back this up before talking about Taylor by saying that again, the the earlier, some of the earlier proponents of religious literacy talk about religion's inclusion in school. And they, they use, you know, they frame it in terms of how the, as they see it, the public school curriculum basically ignores religion as what they term a live option for making sense of the world here and now. That, and of course, people will learn about religion as and I believe this is a term they use as a museum piece, as something that was once historically relevant, but no longer has the same relevance and resonance. And where I found Charles Taylor's work so helpful, and he wrote this massive, for those who haven't haven't gone through it and, and sat with it, it is a massive tome called A Secular Age. And I promise you, I will not attempt to narrate that the, the, you know, the contours of that book and that argument. But what I did find useful for kind of for my own purposes and for this particular study was his kind of conception of his formulation of secularity three, 
as he calls it. And he talks about this through the context of what he terms the imminent frame, thinking about how, you know, religion in, in his understanding, and I, I, I don't want to oversimplify this because there are atten- there have been a lot of critiques of this and also attendance to the nuances within Taylor's own argument. But thinking about how he asked this question of what does it mean to say that we live in a secular age? And then his conception of secularity three, which in his understanding characterizes modernity, that it comes to, to, into, into being where, uh, you know, it's a set of, for him, a set of conditions of belief that put an end to what he terms like this naive acknowledgement of the transcendent or of goals or claims that go beyond human flourishing. So he asked, you know, what does it mean? And I'm paraphrasing here, but that it was virtually impossible not to believe in God in around, you know, 1500 in our Western society while in, and he's writing around 2000, I think the book came out in 2007 that, you know, many of us, you know, find this not only easy, but inescapable. So those are, that's paraphrasing Taylor. And he does presume that, you know, that belief in God was practically invariant, but his observation, you know, has, has resonance and rings true that, you know, according to him about 500 years ago, that belief in God, and he does, and this, again, this is a belief-based metric, but that belief in God would have been widely accepted as a natural state, whereas today it is one possibility among many others. And that to me was the key, the thinking about whether, and again, whether we want to use belief as a particular metric, there've been a lot of critiques of that, that I might share, but that, you know, thinking about what happens when religious belief, or we can broaden that out to say identity or even awareness is one possibility among many others, that it's not simply, and I'm not, and I don't know that it ever was, but it's not simply an invariant or the default. And where this comes into play in religious literacy is again going back to those 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 conversations that I mentioned or those uh, proposals that I mentioned around religion just being this kind of op- a museum piece, something that is not a possibility in the present. And you'll get this. I one of the kind of things that really struck me that I latched on to was again one of these one of the proponents of religious literacy talks about it as basically how religion can come into conversation as part of this wider, that it has to come into, not conflict, but into competition with other points of view. So there was a wider question around basically airtime. What views get appropriate airtime? And the implicit message behind that was that you know, if people are simply not exposed to religious perspectives, and again, we can bracket off what that might mean, but if people aren't exposed to this, then they can't possibly make that choice. So I saw that playing into this narrative around deliberative democracy and around inclusion. So the thinking goes that in order for religion, that one, religion would need to be included, and two, it would need to be presented in a way that it could enter into, and I believe the words used were sort of intellectual competition or the rough and, I, mean, I believe the, the quote actually is the rough and tumble of intellectual competition, which carries with it its own presuppositions around how decision-making is made and, and formed. So I think that's where drawing on Taylor is really, really helpful. And the other piece of 
there are many, many, many varied pieces of Taylor's work and argument. And I think a lot of scholarship has built on it and critiqued it and moved past it in certain aspects, but also continues to draw from it. But Taylor uses the term kind of subtraction stories when thinking about the secular, thinking about how, you know, the secular is not this open space that's just the absence characterized by the absence of religion that if you simply subtract religion you're not left with nothing and that's an insight that so many different scholars have built on and run with yeah i should just say uh i i so my um uh, academic work um, thus far focuses on people who grew up in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community and then left it. And so I actually use Taylor's concept uh, or his critique of secularism as a subtraction story in my own work to argue that the idea that secularism is just an absence of religion. It's just this void um, and is is incorrect. So if you look at people who grew up in a very strict Orthodox Jewish environment, and I would argue the same kind of thing operates in other communities and faiths as well, where if people leave a very strict religion, they're not just left with no religion. <laughs> they're left with a particular reformulation and sometimes sub, um, subversion of the religious ideas, principles, practices, and 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 feelings that they acquired in their you know original community. And so, anyway, um, I think it's a very powerful idea of understanding secularism as uh, I mean historically that's what Taylor's talking about when we think about secularism in the um, in the Western world. It c- grows out of and is influenced by religious ideas that were dominant when secularism was developing. And so when we think about secularism today, Taylor would argue, and it sounds like you're arguing, that um, that secular um, um, ideas and also, as you're talking about, sec- the embodiment of secular feelings and secular, um, you know, other um, a- other aspects of, of secular identity are themselves influenced by religious concepts and religious life. And I would, I would say, I would, I, and now I, I'm absolutely, I want to learn more about your work on this. I, it sounds like we've, we've so much more to discuss, potentially even offline on this. But I, what I would say is that I would align myself more and this project more with the later scholarship that obviously built on this work, critiqued it, sat with it, but on on the question of the secular body, thinking about those embodied, embedded environmental practices, what does that look like? So I would say that, you know, I'll, I'll give the example of, for example, theorists like um, Lois Lee have talked about what she point, what she refers to as the substantial secular, that it's something that comes with its own orientations, attitudes, and attachments that arise out of particular periods and places. This is, you know, building on Tawala's thinking about is there, you know, a genealogy of the secular? What does it actually look like as a force that is not necessarily, that is sometimes something that goes beyond the political? And going back to, and I don't know, I don't think that we've discussed this or mentioned this, but thinking about the kind of classic secularization thesis or paradigm characterized by, you know, the idea of decline, differentiation, and privatization and 
and what I mean by that is decline, you know, decline in adherence and in prominence, differentiation, thinking about secularism in terms of separation of church and state, and privatization, thinking about religion and religion-related themes as being relegated to the private sphere. And this was something that uh, that the people that theorists have kind of pushed back against and saw that that was that things were not playing out exactly in those anticipated ways and using Casanova's phrasing that you know that we were witnessing potentially a deprivatization moment and I think scholarship has has taken that and has moved has moved beyond that and built on that to think about what it actually means to you know to think about how we inhabit the secular but also how, you know, secularity is is part of us and what does that mean for those of us living in working and existing in liberal democratic contexts. And I recognize that these are massive, contested, capacious terms. And I do acknowledge that in the book that, you know, trying not to conflate liberalism with secularism, these are their own conversations with their own histories and and genealogies as well. So I do I do point that out without dwelling on it in the book, but thinking about what that means in terms of thinking about liberal subject formation. So right. and just to mention Casanova, you're referring to is Jose Casanova, the the sociologist. That's right. Um, uh, yes, that you know, there's another famous Casanova. Um, um, uh, okay, that right. uh, that, not that one. <laughs> not that one. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Um, we're almost out of time, so very, very briefly, I'm curious if you have any concrete uh, um, uh, suggestions for how to improve um, um, religious literacy uh, instruction. It's interesting that you that you asked me that, and that was something that was front of mind for me because so much of the conversation around religious literacy is how do you do more of it and how do you do it better? And that was one of the assumptions or presuppositions around the goal of scholarship that I was trying to sort of unpick. But at the same time, of course, you know, you need to think about what you would recommend and how that would work. So I was certainly attuned to that while, while going forward. So what I would say is big picture, you know, what I would recommend, the takeaways that I hope that readers would get from this book and from, from this conversation is really just that I hope that they would come away with a, basically a fresh perspective on the often unnamed moods, environments, feelings, attachments that underpin our liberal democratic context. And more than that, I think through the test case of religious literacy, I hope that the book, I think, gestures towards and provides pathways to what can be done within this changing terrain of applied religious studies and public scholarship. So I think it touches on these, and I'll I'll get to some of the recommendations, but I think it touches on these wider themes throughout that, you know, despite this emphasis on rationality, individual discernment, and deliberative democracy that runs through this promotion, there's often an unacknowledged move to reconfigure our affective, our felt environments, and conditions in the service of greater inclusivity and democratic sociability. So I'd say step one as a recommendation, let's talk about it. Let's name that. If it's, you know, it's if we're going to meet the needs of the present, I think my biggest recommendation is one, that I hope the book would would help spark this conversation is that you know we need to start rethinking and reconsidering and revising religious literacy to meet kind of the present moment. And 
I think the big take home, if we remember nothing else from this conversation, that my hope would be that somebody reading this book or listening in would would be able to think about and continue to consider the need to focus on bodies, not simply on minds, that this is a whole, and then I think it's time that we, you know, take a step into considering this wider and more holistic picture. I also, I will add that I think that there are going to be many areas, and also how do we do this in ways that don't critically reinforce uncritical religion, secular binaries? How do we take very seriously a critical religion critique that that calls us to attend to kind of the power formations that the category of religion itself can sometimes assume and put forward. So I'd say that is a recommendation. And the final thing I I would say on this point is that I really do think, especially, you know, in this present moment around thinking about threats to liberal democracy and other, you know, and potential threats to democratic order that is gaining a lot of prominence right now is that, I think that there are going to be many areas for further research into embodied pedagogy. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, what it means to be a liberal subject during these times of threat. So attuning ourselves to the affects, emotions, role of bodies and environment within our civic spaces. I am absolutely convinced that these will be sites for further research. And I think perhaps more importantly, urgent action as well. So those are those are my big hopes and I think recommendations as well. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here and I appreciate our conversation. Thank you for hosting me. Well, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.